I notice lately that I've been doing that more. Sighing. I googled why am I sighing more. One site suggested that it was my age. <laughs> I didn't like that. So I went to another link and it raised health concerns. I'm not breathing rightly or breathing enough. Then I learned that my sighing could be because I'm anxious or stressed. That extra sighs are linked to chronic anxiety, panic disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder. I didn't like that either. <laughs> then I found a site that actually said that sighing is good for you. One said it's the body's internal reset button that activates the nervous system in the process of rest. I'll accept that one. <laughs> or maybe, just maybe, Sam was right. You know, Sam, a sigh is just a sigh, a fundamental thing of life as time goes by. Some of you remember that. Today we're going to look at Psalm 38 in a message entitled, Sigh of the Infirmed. And I draw this title from verse 9 of Psalm 38, which says, O Lord, all my longing is before you, my sighing is not hidden from you. Let's read the psalm, Psalm 38, Psalm of David for the memorial offering. Verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also is gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait it is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, of my salvation. 
By way of introduction, I want to read a portion of the introduction of Puritan Thomas Brooks' work, The Mute Christian Under the Smarting Rod. And I'm going to quote from this powerful work frequently in this sermon, as well as, God willing, in next sermon, Psalm 39, which you heard read this morning, because The Mute Christian is actually an exposition of Psalm 39. In Psalm 39, on a few occasions, it talks about the psalmist David closing his mouth in verse 9. He says, I was mute. I opened not my mouth because you have done it. The mute Christian uh, under the smarting rod may as well have been an exposition of, of verse 13 of our psalm, where David says, I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. And in my opinion, Brooks's insight into the role and purpose of God in suffering and in chastening, is unmatched, even to our day. He writes in his introduction, To all afflicted and distressed, dissatisfied, disquieted, and discomposed Christians throughout the world. He writes, Dear hearts, the choicest of saints are born to trouble as spark flies upward. Many are the troubles of the righteous, If they were many and not troubles, then as it is the proverb, the more the merrier. Or if they were troubles and not many, then the fewer the better cheer. But God, who is infinite in wisdom and matchless in goodness, hath ordered troubles, yea, many troubles, to come trooping in upon us on every side. As our mercies, so our crosses seldom come single. They usually come treading one upon the heels of another. They are like April showers. No sooner is one over than another comes. And yet, Christians, it is mercy, it is rich mercy, that every affliction is not an execution, that every correction is not a damnation. The higher the waters rise, Nearer to Noah's ark was lifted up to the heavens. The more thy afflictions are increased, the more thy heart shall be raised heavenward. Brooks explains why he wrote the work. He gives some personal reasons for composing the mute Christian. He continues in the introduction. He says, The afflicting hand of God hath been hard upon myself and upon my dearest relations in the world and upon many of my precious Christian friends whom I much love and honor in the Lord, which put me upon studying the mind of God in that scripture that I have made the subject matter of this following discourse. Martin Luther could not understand some psalms till he was afflicted. The Christ cross is no letter in the book, talking about the book of Psalms, yet he, Luther, said, it hath taught me more than all the letters of the book. Afflictions are a golden key by which the Lord opens the rich treasure of his word to people's souls. And this, in some measure, through grace, my soul hath experienced. I highly recommend that work if you have not read it. You'll get a taste of it today. Like Brooks, it's my prayer that this sermon would be used to help you. To help you understand, appreciate, and even embrace suffering and chastisement as a gift of God. You heard me say that right, by the way. That suffering is God's gift. 
We live in a world of sin, and therefore it is a world of sorrow, where we go through much tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. Paul said that. You must go through much tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. So we ought to expect the path of the Christian in this land here where uh, there is great sorrow. We have to pass through this land to go to the land where there is no sorrow. And that being so, it would behoove us to learn and understand God's purposes for tribulation and trials as his gift and embrace them, truly see them uh, see the uh, the proverbial rainbow through the rain. How the storms of life cause us to take refuge in our very present help in time of trouble. How the furnace of affliction is the purifying agent that God uses to conform us to the image of his Son. Few Christians these days grasp this. But Paul understood it in Philippians 1.29. He says it has been granted to you. That means it's a gift. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. It's been granted to you to believe. And every Calvinist loves that and says amen. It's been granted to you to believe. But what also? But also suffer. I don't want that. Suffer for his sake. In a life where we must endure many tribulations, I pray that the ancient words of King David here would be a balm to your soul in the midst of your personal suffering. Psalm 38 has traditionally been categorized as a penitential psalm, a psalm of repentance. It's, there are seven such psalms. This is the third one. We've already done Psalm 6 many years ago, and a few years later done Psalm 38. Uh, psalm 6 is actually the psalm, I'm sorry, 32. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are the ones that were written by David clearly after his uh, adultery, sin of adultery. Psalm 38, which bears a resemblance to Psalm 6, which is also considered a penitential psalm, is more of a a lamentation. It's a cry of the psalm. David is crying out with words and sighs for relief from a physical suffering and emotional anguish that he's going through in life. It is penitential in the sense that David understands that this suffering that he's going through is from his personal sin. We see this in verse 4, my iniquities. In verse 5, my foolishness. In verse 18 again, my iniquity, my sin. He's taking responsibility. So in seeking to, to understand Psalm 38, as we look at it today, it's been divided in various ways by various commentators. But for our purposes today, I'm simply going to divide this psalm as a narrative of his affliction between verses 5 and 20, surrounded by an opening and closing prayer in verses 1 through 4 and 21 and 22. So let's look at the psalm, beginning with the title. This is a psalm of David. David is the author of this psalm. It says, for the memorial offering. Now, it's unclear exactly whether this psalm was written for a particular occasion. Some commentators say the memorial offering was a special offering where the smoke ascended up into heaven to remind God of the worshiper's suffering. He was feeling forsaken, so he would offer a memorial offer to remind God that, hey, I'm forsaken, remember me, God. 
Now, we, this is possible, but we can make no guess when in David's life this was written. Uh, the Bible makes no specific mention of David suffering any severe physical illness, but likely he did. He was human after all, and especially in his day, people got severely ill. Kings were not exempt. So likely it was at some time, unmentioned in the scripture, when David was severely ill. The first four verses of the psalm establish the tone. David is experiencing physical suffering that he acknowledges is the result of his personal sin. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. His words leave no doubt that this affliction that he is experiencing is the result of personal sin. First, he describes it as discipline, God's rebuke, arrows sinking into him. His guilt, he says, is a heavy burden. And in the midst of this, his plea is not for God to remove the discipline, but that he would temper the discipline with mercy. He knows that it's impossible for him, or any human being for that matter, to stand up against the anger and wrath of God. And he knows also that discipline is warranted. He he sees his sin. And he knows that God is a faithful father, who disciplines the son who he loves. In a way, we could say this is God's goodness to David because this goodness, as we're going to see, is going to lead him to repentance. Again, listen to Thomas Brooks, the mute Christian. All the afflictions that come upon the saints, they are fruits of divine love. Revelation 3.19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Hebrews 12.6, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Job 5.17, behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore, despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. There cannot be greater evidence of God's hatred and wrath than in his refusing to correct men for their sinful course and vanities. Where God refuses to correct, there God resolves to destroy. There is no man so near the axe, so near the flame, so near hell, as he whom God will not so much spend a rod upon. God is most angry where he shows no anger. God afflicts thee, O Christian, in love. And therefore, Luther cries out, Strike, Lord, strike, Lord, and spare not. Scripture tells us, faithful are the wounds of a friend. God is our friend, and he chastens us at times when we need it. We heard the, the testimony of our brother Michael last, uh, last week, how God severely chastened him. And that chastening is what led him to repentance. Psalm 119, 71, the singer of of that psalm rejoices, It is good for me that I have been afflicted 
that I might learn your statutes. The British poet and hymn writer Henry Francis Light underwent a spiritual change in his life. Uh, His new birth was shaped as a result of bearing through the illness and death of a friend, a clergyman. And Light wrote of this man, he said, he died happy under the belief that though he had deeply erred, there was one whose death and suffering would atone for his delinquencies and be accepted for all that he had incurred. Light is known for writing these words among many thousands of others. He said, go then, earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to thee. Light learned what King David learned, what Martin Luther learned, what Thomas Brooks learned, what our brother Michael learned, what countless number of saints have learned throughout the ages, what Job learned. Go back to Job. Go to the book of Job and turn to Job chapter 5. We can go all the way back to ancient Job with the same lesson. Job chapter 5, verse 6. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. Same thing that the, David said, by the way, that this is from the hand of God in Psalm 39. They, they come from you. I'm mute because they come from you. Let's look down to verse 17. Skip down to verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. Job understood. Job, of all men, was suffering a hell on earth. And he saw everything on this side of hell as mercy. Again, listen to Brooks, Thomas Brooks. He says, consider that the trials and troubles, the calamities and miseries, the crosses and losses that you meet in this world is all the hell that ever you shall have. Here you have your hell. Hereafter you shall have your heaven. This is the worst of your condition. The best is yet to come. And indeed, for those who are in Christ, your best life is not now. It is to come. Now back to Psalm 38. David, like Job, experiences a couple of kinds of suffering in this psalm. There is the physical pain, and then there is the ensuing abandonment and abuse of those that are around him. Now listen first how he describes the physical pain and the emotional pain associated with it, beginning in verse 5. Verse 5. My my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bound down, bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Go down to verse 10. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. The light of my eyes has also gone from me. 
Go down to verse 17. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. So we have him here, David, in physical pain. And this physical pain serves to humble him, to quiet his soul and find his utter dependence upon God. Look at verse 9. This is his response to the pain. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. Verse 13 and 14. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. And then in verse 15, it's building patience. He says, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. This posture of David of, of silence and patience ultimately leads to humility before God and confession of his sin. Look at verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. So as a result of his suffering, similar to Job, right? It's a very sim parallel here. David's suffering results also then in relational effects. It affects those around him. His own suffering affects his relationship with those around him. Just like Job's wife called on him to curse God and die. Job's friends that surrounded him judged him. But look at what happens in David's relationships. Verse 11, he says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand afar off. It's very much like, almost like leprosy. It's not leprosy, but it has that sense to it. The people around him are treating him like a leper. Now, people have a hard time knowing how to deal with someone who's sick. They don't always know how to respond, how to comfort. Many don't, don't know what to say in, in such situations. Some feel obligated to say something, some kind of comforting word that quite honestly at times seems canned. Oh, don't worry. God is with you. He's working all things together for good. And, and we love those promises, but sometimes they do feel a bit overused. Others, like Job's comforters, feel an obligation to help you find out an explanation for your sickness. What is it that you might have done to bring this on yourself? And then others just can't deal with it and they kind of back off like you're a leper. And I think we all struggle with this at times. There are a few gifted people who have the kind of compassion that can sit with someone and sigh with the infirmed person. Most of the time, all the sick person needs, quite honestly, is someone to talk to, someone to compassionately commiserate with, to ask questions and listen. But we feel awkward. Sometimes we feel guilty because they're not presently suffering to the level of your suffering, or they're suffering more than you are. That's happened to me just a couple of weeks ago, a brother of ours going through stage four prostate cancer. And I'm like stage one, you know, that I, that I had. And I feel like he's going through radiation and, and chemotherapy and it's difficult. We feel awkward. But I will say, 
Though we struggle with what to say, what to do, we want to help, how can we help? I will say that your presence alone, your presence helps the infirmed. Even with your awkward advice, it's, it's better than standing aloof. But that's what David's family and friends did. But they weren't the worst of it. While his friends and kin standing far off, there are others who revel in his weakness. Look at verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Now, David was a king. He had a lot of enemies. So his enemies, seeing him sick, maybe they think, hey, this could be his last sickness and we can jump on on him. We got the king right where we want him. And there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Right? The public always seems to thrive on the faltering of leaders. I think of our own country and our own president who often stumbles in his speech and has moments of forgetfulness and how quickly people jump on him like vultures surrounding a dying animal. They just love to mock. I see how quick even Christians are to expose the moral failings of Christian leaders who they disagree with. They love it. They revel in it. He got what he deserved. And I don't know the psychological source of this, but it seems to be human nature. If you don't believe me, if there's an accident on the way home, it's typically an accident on the other side of the road and you're stuck in traffic on the other side of the road. People are looking. What happened over there? People love to watch failure or humiliation of others. There's this warped, voyeuristic sense in fallen humanity to gape at catastrophe. Maybe it's a way of excusing our own failings. Brethren, don't join the jeers of mockers. Do not judge. Do you realize that when you point the finger of judgment and accusation, you're actually doing the work of the devil? Who's the accuser of the brethren? Satan, right? Instead, in humility, be the kind of person that others will trust to come to. People ought to trust you to confess their faults to you. Encourage an environment in our church and in your homes where others, your, your spouse, your, your children, feel comfortable confessing their sin. Don't be like these people in this psalm who hear David's confession and pounce on him. Look at verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. See, Sadly, it is this very kind of public humiliation and judgmental attitude that keeps people from confessing their sin, often to their own detriment. Like Job, David has no words. Remember at the end of Job, I put my hand over my mouth. Look at verse 13, David. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man, who does not open his mouth. Words cannot be found. David's longing, though, and sighing is before God. Look at verse 9. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing 
is not hidden from you. Turn to Romans, Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 18, the Apostle Paul considers the suffering and the groaning that's associated with living in a sin-cursed world. He writes in verse 23, uh, Romans 8, 23, that we ourselves, talking about Christians, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He goes on to talk about what we groan, but we don't groan as a people who have no hope. We have hope, but we're in this season of waiting now. We're enduring pain. We're enduring the pain of physical affliction. We're enduring the pain of broken relationships. But as we do, we have this divine person, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 26 of Romans 8. Romans 8, 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's the sigh. That's the sigh of the infirm. That's the the sigh of David. The Spirit is groaning with groans too deep for words. Pastor Tim Shorey, who is a local pastor, believe in South Jersey, currently journaling his grappling with terminal stage four cancer. He writes this, he, he calls this stage of life between groaning and hope. He writes this, he says, I sigh a lot these days, especially when it hits me that death is already in me, that awareness will invariably tinge with grief, everything I feel and do from here on out. Anyone living with chronic suffering will know something of this. Sighing sadness marks those who wake up each morning with the same sorrow, loss, betrayal, injustice, sickness, divorce, financial hardship, and addiction. It marks the consequence of bad choices to which they woke up yesterday. Well-intentioned comforters, in quotes, often urge sufferers toward greater faith and get over whatever it is they're under. But they miss that people are still weeping because it still hurts. I know I have joyful hope in Jesus, but life on earth is still filled with groaning. Where does David in the psalm, where does the sighing lead him to? Let's go to the final two verses of the psalm. This is where David makes his plea for deliverance. Now realize, nothing has changed since he began this psalm. He's still sick. His friends still abandon him. His enemies are still accusing him. Yet his plea is not, Lord, remove the sickness, restore my friendships. But it's that God would draw near. Look at verse 21. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me. O Lord, my salvation. So the storm that was in his life, this affliction, ends up accomplishing the intention that God had in bringing that storm. And that is to drive David to his ever-present help. Spurgeon vividly and famously said these words. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that has slammed me into the rock of ages. Think about that for a minute. I've learned to kiss the wave 
that has slammed me into the rock of ages. The waves of tribulation that land us upon Christ. Look at those last words. My Lord, my Savior, Adonai Teshua. If you had to sum up all of Scripture in two words, it's Adonai Teshua. My Lord, my Savior. If you put my Lord and my Savior together, you get Yeshua, which is the name Jesus, which means God is salvation. You shall call him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. God is salvation. That's the summary of, of all of Scripture. My Lord, my Savior. Do you know your Lord, your Savior? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? If not, there is salvation in none other. You can't save yourself. Salvation is God's free gift to you. If you, like David, will humble yourself, confess your sin, and wait upon God for help and deliverance. Jesus is the single hope in a sin-darkened world. Look, we're all born into this world Born into trouble, as in the words of Job. As sparks fly upward, so man is born into trouble. Where else are you going to run in the midst of trouble? Where are you going to take refuge in the midst of this storm of life that we call life? Many never find refuge. Or they seek for refuge in the, from the storms in their own self-sufficiency. To hide anywhere but in Christ will end in death. Imagine being battered around in life, trouble after trouble after trouble of life, dying, and then, because you did not take refuge in Christ, waking up in hell. Hell on earth and hell in the future. Run to Jesus. He is your refuge. He is the only true refuge for your soul. Run to him. I'll take what time we have remaining to consider some points of application. Application that we can glean from this psalm. Number one, the psalm reveals that acknowledging sin is the way out of ultimate destruction. Do not ignore the connection between suffering and personal sin. There is power in confessing and acknowledging and confessing your sin. There's a phrase that I heard that says, we are only as sick as our secrets. David said this in Psalm 32. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. He said, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquities. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So there is a breakthrough in confessing our sins. Confessing our sins to God or, or and, a, a trusted confidant can break the power of guilt and help someone receive forgiveness. Especially if you could find someone who's, who can commiserate because they've been through the same thing and you can confide in them because they struggled with the same things that you struggle with and you could talk to them. They receive the forgiveness of God. So avail yourself. If you've been through a trial, you've been through a difficulty, you've been through a, a, a sin that you have confessed and now are on the other side of it, avail yourself to others. Comfort others with the same comfort you've received. Those dealing with the same temptations and the same sins need your comfort. 
Some things are very difficult to confess, and you only feel comfortable confessing them to someone who you know went through the same thing. You need a a compassionate friend. Now, confession may not take away all the physical consequences of sin, but it does lift the guilt of sin. 1 John 1 9 is true. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In our psalm, David clearly sees his suffering as a direct consequence of his sin. See it again, verse 1. What does he call it? Discipline. Verse 3. There's no health in my bones. Why? Because of my sin. Verse 4, for my iniquities have gone over my head. And then he confesses his sin in verse 18. There's no doubt in David's mind that this infirmity is a consequence of his sin. Now, I have to be careful. I do believe it is a spiritually healthy practice to examine ourselves during affliction and ask God, Is there something in me that you are disciplined? I I believe we do ourselves a disservice if every sickness or every affliction that comes into our lives, we merely say, oh, that's the fallen world. That's the world. We live in a fallen world. And I realize there's a pendulum swing here because it is the assumption of many false teachers that all sickness is the result of some lack of faith or some secret sin. So you have to be careful. And we would be quick and we would be right to pause that and say, not always, not always. John chapter 9, the disciples presumed the man was born blind. They said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What did Jesus say? Neither of them. It was not this man who sinned, it was not his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. The whole book of Job, his suffering has nothing to do with any specific sin. In fact, God calls him upright and blameless. It was his friends, the false teachers, who concluded otherwise. Yet, while we readily explain how sickness is the result of sin generally in the world, the fall of humanity, a broken world, we're reticent at times to consider sickness as God's chastening for personal sin. Now, I'm not saying we go around pointing fingers at sick people. I'm saying examine ourselves before God. We can't let the pendulum swing too far the other way. Because remember, the man who Jesus healed after 38 years of being blind and paralyzed, Jesus said to him these words. He said, see, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What's the implication there? It was his sin that brought the the sickness And then he says, if he sins further, if he were to continue in sin, there'll be worse consequences than being blind and paralyzed for 38 years. See? So there is a connection. So while we would rightly say, not always to the false teacher, not always, understand not always does not mean not ever. It does not exclude the possibility of sickness being a chastening for sin. In James chapter 5, where we read about those in the church who are sick to go into the elders to pray for prayer, it's in the context of confessing sin. 
Immediately after, in verse 16, James writes this. Right after he says, go to the elders and have, have them pray over you. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And we err to our detriment by assuming there is no connection whatsoever between our affliction and our sins. We cannot always run to Job. We're not always to assume that we're Job. In fact, it's prideful to do so, so you need correction for pride. David was being disciplined by God, and God was using a physical illness as the means. But he has discernment to see through that secondary cause of the physical illness, and he sees the hand of God in that sickness. This is why, at the end of the day, he could be mute and silent and ultimately turn to God. See, if we fail to see God's hand in affliction, where, what are we going to do? We're going to complain. We're going to cry over the injustice that's been done to us by human hands. We're going to bemoan, oh, if I only did it this way and I didn't do it that way. Oh, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Listen again, Thomas Brooks. He says, such as can see the ordering hand of God in all their afflictions will, with David, lay their hand upon their mouths when the rod of God is upon their backs. If God's hand be not seen in the affliction, the heart will do nothing but fret and rage under affliction. Brethren, as long as we are sinners, we have to consider this possibility, that our suffering is God's discipline for some sin or some character flaw. What ought we do in the midst of suffering it is not, it doesn't hurt us to ask these questions. Now the answer may be no, but we ought to ask ourselves these questions. One, have I sinned? Is there some disobedient way in me? Something I should be doing or should not be doing? And is God using this trial to get me back on track? Second, is there some harsh attitude, some impatient, some rough edges in my personality that are bringing dishonor to God before others? that God is using this trial to develop humility and silence and a more Christ-like character in me. Don't be afraid to do that. Examine yourself in these areas. Where Where have I been disobedient? Is there a sin of commission in my life? Is there something I'm omitting? Am I ignoring God's word in some way? I'm not talking about some secret exercise of navel gazing here. Like, I, I, I know there must be some sins, find it, Lord, and I don't even know what it is. I, I'm talking about biblical self-examination. We know where we fail God. We know where we don't obey. And if you don't, ask him to show you, and he will. If this is discipline, he will show you that it is discipline. And then realize that discipline is not a bad thing when it actually comes to you. It's the mark of God's fatherly love for you. He loves you way too much to leave you alone to be turned over to your sin. That's part of his salvation plan, to sanctify us through suffering. Brooks again writes, It was a father who put those bitter cups in their hands, and love that laid those heavy crosses upon their shoulders, and grace that put those yokes around their necks. And this caused much quietness and calmness in their spirit. Which brings me to point number two in the application. Embrace suffering as God's gift. 
Embrace suffering as God's gift. If you don't do that, what's the other response? If you fail to see God's uh, goodness in this trial, you're going to become bitter. You know, it's a trite saying, but it is nevertheless true that trials or suffering will make you either bitter or better. So realize this is God's gift. In the valley is where you're closest. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. May we find in the valley of discipline God's chastening rod to be a supporting staff. Third point of application. What I've already said. Don't be among the accusers. Minister with to the weak with grace. Be a person characterized by grace when it comes to the sin and suffering of others. It is not your place to point out that a brother or sister needs to repent of some sin because they're suffering. God chastens in private. When we need our spanking, he doesn't take us into the public square and spank us. He doesn't publish our sins for all to see in our hearts. He shows us in our hearts. And brother, sister, again, you should be the safest place that any Christian could go to for any sinner to go to to confess their sin. Don't do Satan's work in the church. Do not be among the voices who either abandon or mock or judge or plot against or accuse. Listen, even if your enemy should falter, don't gloat. Be a minister of grace. Minister to the infirmed and weak with grace. Fourth, wait on the Lord. Be patient. All over Psalm 37, 38, 39, 40, all, all of them. Um, I won't, we're going to be getting into waiting a lot in Psalm 39 and Psalm 40. So we have plenty of sermons on waiting coming up. So, but let me just say here, David waited, verse 10 of Psalm 38. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. David learned patience. We could say, wow, he had to learn more patience. Think about David, right? Prophet Samuel comes to him and says, you're going to be the king. He has to wait decades. Then his predecessor, King Saul, tries to kill him, and he's got to wait through his his reign. Then, then Saul dies, and he's got to wait another seven years before he's king over all of Israel. Then he deals with this thing with his son, Absalom. I mean, there's so much. David was a patient Man, and he's needed to learn through these intense physical and emotional trials to wait. David is leaving the outcome to God, his sickness and his trial. He knew that God would take care of him and God will take care of you. Fifth, Psalm 38 teaches us that God hears the prayers of sinners. We're not alone in our trials. God is with us. Our emotions, the pain, the suffering are important to God, even if, even if. We say, yeah, God is close to me during suffering and trials. As long as I didn't bring it upon myself, then I'm just getting what I deserve. No. This psalm shows us your suffering and pain is important to God, even if you've brought it upon yourself through your sin. God would never tell his child, as some might, You made your bed, now lie in it. 
No, he hears the prayers of sinners. Contrary to the opinion of the Pharisees, who proudly announced in John chapter 9 with the man who was born blind, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. God listens to worshipers. To the contrary, God hears and answers the prayers of sinners. And if you don't believe this, you'll never pray as a sinner. Your sin, your shame, your guilt is going to keep you from going to God. You're going to be like Adam and Eve in the garden. Their sin was exposed and they ran away from God. But as Christians, sometimes, brothers and sisters, sometimes when we sin, we fear, have we exhausted the grace of God? You may know the gospel in your head, but sometimes it doesn't, you don't feel it. Especially when there's self-inflicted suffering, you don't feel it. And then there's your enemy who's whispering into your ears or hissing into your ears. God doesn't love you. He's given up on you. You're worthless. You'll never measure up. You're a sinner. Remember Luther's response? Famous response. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? I love that what of it. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Hallelujah. Spurgeon said, this, he said, when, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom so that big sinners like me might fit through. David was cognizant of his sin and he had audacity. He had audacity to run, not away from God. He had audacity to run to God to mitigate the very discipline that God was disciplining him for his sin. That's an audacious prayer. That's one that can be offered because David understood what it means to approach the throne of grace. Why would Jesus tell us to pray, tell his disciples to pray, forgive me of my sins in the Lord's Prayer, if, there, if we were not sinners? And yes, we are gradually overcoming sin by the power of the Holy Spirit but our body of death has not been obliterated in the new birth. It will be one day, but it is not. So keep the gospel close to your heart, brother and sister. You're forgiven in Christ. Bind your heart and mind to this eternal, objective, unchanging truth, whether you feel it or not. This is something that persists beyond your perception. When you're going through trials, it's hard to, to receive these truths but know that you are forgiven in Christ. One of the reasons this psalm is so beautiful is that it lends a voice to our own sufferings. And when we think about this man, David, think of David, the character and nature of David. God called him a man after God's own heart. If a man after God's own heart could say, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, my heart throbs, my strength fails me, I'm ready to fall. If David could say that, what can we say? What can we say? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Psalms like this reassure us that those who know God and those who love God will go through seasons of suffering. And that in and of itself is encouraging. You're not alone. 
in this fiery trial that you are presently enduring. And David's words echo that turmoil within our soul when we suffer, especially when we suffer due to our own sin. And that suffering actually threatens to obscure the gospel, block the gospel, uh, obscure ident- our identity in Christ, and we grope around through shadows. Psalms like this one reassure us that those who are dearest to God, even the one that God would say, here is a man after my own heart, still struggle through seasons of self-inflicted suffering. The heroes of the faith. Surely David knew God, loved God, but here he is drowning in sighs. I love how at the end of the psalm he personalizes that last verse, my Lord, Adonai, my Lord, my salvation. It's an audacious prayer of a sinner who has come audaciously, boldly, to the throne of grace. Don't let your sin, your suffering, whether it be injustice that is done against you or your anxiety or your depression or anything else keep you from drawing near to God. None of those things can separate you from his love. Finally, this psalm, as all the psalms and all of Old Testament scripture, leave us with hope for a coming messianic salvation. And Psalm 38 is no different. Our suffering and pain is in this life. And it causes us to do two things, to look back and look ahead. To look back to the anchor of our soul in God's work and the gospel in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. But also to look ahead in hope. As sinners, we know that we are deserving of God's wrath and God's anger. How can we pray, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, when we know that we're deserving of wrath and anger? It is by looking back to Christ. It is as you know that God's anger and wrath have been fully satisfied in the cross of Jesus Christ, that we have a propitiation, that is a wrath-absorbing substitute who took upon himself on the cross all of the wrath and all of the anger that my sin deserves, paying the price once for all and reconciling us to God. He bridges the gap between sinful humans and a holy God. Jesus, the God-man, lived the perfect life, died in our place. And because he was sinless, he was not subject to the wage of sin, and God, so God raised him from the dead. And where is he today? He's ascended to the right hand where he lives, ever lives, to make intercession for us. That's how we could pray that prayer. That's how we could pray, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, when we know that we're deserving of anger and wrath. We could pray this today as children, and we know that he hears us because of his Deity, the deity of Jesus. Jesus is at his right hand in his deity and in his humanity, interceding before the Father for his children. So, brethren, while sorrow and distress might leave us mute and paralyzed and sighing in our body, because of the gospel, we cleave to an assurance of a new heaven's and a new earth, a day when there is no more sorrow, a day where there is no more suffering, no more tears, because there is no more sin.